It's a movement, but it's about people. Be the People is about we the people joining forces to reclaim and reshape the best of our nation's time-treasured traditions. Each week, we offer insightful interviews with movers and shakers from all different spheres of life. And now, please welcome Dr. Carol Swain. Welcome to another episode of Be The People podcast. We hear a lot today about social justice. Social justice is something you have pastors talking about, young people. You see the social justice warriors protesting across the country. Sometimes they're burning up things. Is there a biblical justice that supersedes the social justice we see in the secular world? My next guest has some thoughts about this. Let me introduce you to Dr. Christina Crenshaw. She's a professor, researcher, writer, and an activist in human trafficking. She's a Christian. And so she has some thoughts about biblical justice rather than social justice. So help me to welcome Dr. Crenshaw to the Be The People Show. Oh, thank you, Dr. Swain. It is an honor to be here. And yes, I uh, one of the things that I really enjoy talking about is the catalyst for why Christians do justice and what scripture asks of us and how that is sufficient, um, more sufficient than any of the postmodern narratives that are telling us to do justice. So I am happy to be here and happy to talk about this. Christina, um, uh, listeners, we are mostly familiar with first getting beaten over the head by people who say the church is not involved in social justice. It ought to be. Uh, what are some of the attacks you've heard on Christians and churches about how we approach social justice? Yeah, thank you for asking. I will share a little bit about a recent event that just happened to me, and I will dub that into more of a macro narrative of what I see going on kind of, you know, larger scale, big C church. So uh, recently I made a splash within evangelical Christian community because I had asked on Twitter, responded to somebody and said, you know, hey, with this Title IX expansion that would allow biological males or, you know, biological females to identify as another gender and to compete in sports and, and be in other spaces, do the rest of us have a voice on this? And so I was asking this question as a mother, as an anti-trafficking activist, as a woman, and I am faculty at a Christian university. I was really surprised to see uh, students who are coming more from like a secular humanist perspective uh, raise their voices in opposition. I think that the reason this story caught on so quickly is because we did not expect to see this with anybody who associates as a Christian. And I think it really drove this line, this sort of like dichotomy, if you will, down people who are more historic, who are aligning more with historical biblical sense of justice 
really pointing to scripture for the reasons we do, you know, what would be in the public square considered common good work. And then those who are buying into these postmodern narratives that really don't align well, or at least not holistically, I think would be fair to say, with the, this more biblical perspective of justice. So I think that, you know, we've sort of talked about this in theory, but this was a very tangible example of, okay, there is a competing narrative that is really concerning, even within the church, that we need to address. And it is, why do we do justice as Christians? What does scripture say about doing justice? And what is the difference between doing good for the glory of God versus doing good strictly for humanity? Because there is a difference. And I think that is, you know, kind of the conversation we want to have today. And uh, you're absolutely correct. And I'm thinking about our listeners. And could you briefly say what Title IX is? And a little bit about postmodernism, because some of our listeners may not have heard the concepts the way you use them. Okay, sure. So Title IX was established in 1972, I believe. And initially, Title IX was meant to, within educational spaces, create sacred space for specifically women, equitable um, places for women to compete academically, for women to compete in sports, to create a safe and equitable culture for women. Because historically, women did not have equal opportunity to things like sports education. So that has been our understanding of Title IX since 1972. With um, the Biden administration, I believe that Obama did this as well, and then Trump rolled this back, but then Biden reinstated Title IX to also cover people who identify as transgender. And what that means is that they can then choose whichever gender they most identify with, they're most comfortable with, and decide as a biological male that they want to compete in biological female sports, or they want to be in girls clubs, or they want to, you know, be in other spaces that have historically been reserved for women. It also means that the gender fluidity in the public square becomes so nebulous that any biological male, whether they're transgender or not, can decide that they want to identify as a biological female and go into a female restroom. So that is the concern there. And one of the things that I know has happened is that in some of the uh, sports, I guess, such as boxing, the biological male has uh, created life uh, threatening injuries to women. And in what is it, track, track. because men are built differently than women, uh, they win almost all the prizes. It's very rare. I read recently about a woman that did win, but mostly uh, those dudes beat them up. Yeah, absolutely. Because any most reasonable people can point to biology and say there is an absolute biological difference between sex. And as we, you know, had talked before on your um, television show, that that gender is really a social construct. You know, it, it's fine to say that is a little bit more gray, but sex is not gray. Sex can be evidenced with biology. And I think that that is, again, you know, kind of where it's concerning because we know that men are biologically hardwired um, and built differently than women. And to your point, yes, um, the ADF, the Alliance Defense for Freedom, uh, picked up a case a couple of years ago where they're defending a young woman in high school 
who was beat in track and lost scholarship to two biological males who were competing within the women's category. So we're already seeing cases of this. This isn't theoretical. If we allow biological men to occupy biologic or biological males to occupy biological female spaces, it is going to create a crisis for women. And some people say the solution would be testing them for male hormones because some of these males, in fact, most of them have not gone all the way through the process of changing their sex. So physically they're still male or they have high testosterone or high um, uh, hormones that give them an advantage. Right, that is correct. And so even once people transition, you know, from one gender to the other there, I mean, you cannot ever fully transition. And so it still gives biological males an advantage over biological females. And I think even that aside, because really, as I've been doing the research on this, depending on what part of the country you live in, it's less than 1%. And even sometimes like in Texas, it is 0.4% of the population. Now, the other thing that you mentioned as a concept, uh, I talk a lot about critical theory, mostly critical yes. race theory. Uh, you use the concept that's related to all of this of postmodernism. Just briefly uh, tell the listeners about postmodernism. Yeah, so postmodernism has a lot of concentric overlap with things like critical theory, or as you mentioned, Dr. Swain, critical race theory. I think of critical theory as being kind of the mothership behind a lot of other postmodern theories. So when we say, you know, there's modernity, there's modernism, and that's usually the period about World War One, World War Two, up until, you know, 1940s, 1950s. About 1950s, 1960s, we start looking at this historical, I mean, so you see this um, within history, you see this within social sciences, you see this even now within theology, we're talking about postmodern. So these are thoughts and theories that have emerged since about the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And to give your listeners some actual examples, that would be anything from like critical race theory, queer theory, feminist theory, deconstructionism, the idea that we have to tear everything down, including theology, in order to rebuild it with things that don't involve an oppressor and an oppressed. That's, a, that's also a tenet of critical theory and postmodernism, the idea that there's only two camps, you're either an oppressor or you're the oppressed, which you could see would really create a lot of discord in society. Right. And, and these ideas, these dangerous secular ideas have seeped into the church. And so what you're talking about is really important when it comes to, okay, church people, we need to distinguish between biblical justice. What does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? And how does this uh, compare and contrast to what the world says? Right, exactly. Because, you know, most people who know, you know, have, um, some semblance of an idea of theology know that scripture gives us a lot of verses for why we would do justice. Everything from loving our neighbors, loving the widows and the orphan, orphans, doing justice, bringing light to the darkness, you know, doing good, not harm. So we already have this framework. And the, the thing about the Bible that I just so love is we understand that we are doing good in society, but that is not where it ends. Scripture tells us we are doing this unto the glory of God, that when we point people to Jesus, that he brings ultimate healing, that he brings ultimate redemption and restoration in a way that no secular narrative ever could. 
I mean, there just no narrative, no theory ever created by man could be sufficient to replace the Savior. And so we see that the gospel gives us reason to do justice. You can even look at the Old Testament for reason to do justice. But we really don't need anything beyond that. And so what I say to students, because I've taught a lot of these theories, I've taught a lot of these theorists because I want them to have an, a holistic understanding. But I always and every time bring it back to what does scripture say. And so I say, do an alignment here. If you can find the Bible in this theory, then align it. But if you cannot find scripture in this theory, then you need to reject that tenet of it. So, um, so yeah, so I would say, you know, looking at the Bible, there's, there's a litmus for, do, you know, we can see that God speaks to creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That is the whole of the biblical narrative. And we're going to take a break. And when we return, I want you to talk about your, you are a professor now at Baylor University, you're a lecturer. And your human trafficking courses is where you integrate a lot of this material. So I want you to talk about that as well as the reaction uh, you've received, not just at the university, but also around the world from being thrust into the public eye because of this little Twitter controversy. Be the People is sponsored by Cooper Steel, a family-owned business that provides the steel fabrications for buildings across the Southeast. Sixty years ago, Kenneth and Faye Cooper founded the company in Chevyville, Tennessee, which started as a vision is now a nationally recognized company that remains true to its founders' Judeo-Christian values and principles. Cooper Steel is committed to excellence, responsibility, and community. Its motto is build strong, stand strong. It treats its employees and customers like family. Learn more at coopersteel.com. The Biden administration's executive order on immigration brings to the forefront one of the most volatile issues of our time. In this timely second edition of Debating Immigration, I join my voice to that of other experts to provide you with facts and information that will help you understand what is at stake for our nation. This edition offers 21 original essays that cover race, religion, economics, human smuggling, and civil rights. Purchase at bethepeoplenews.com front slash books or wherever books are sold. Fighting every day against the internet monopolies that are trying to stifle our right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. guest, Dr. Christina Crenshaw. She's a professor uh, at Baylor University, and she has been talking with us about biblical justice uh, versus the social justice we hear about all the time from the progressive left. And so, uh, uh, Christina, tell us a little bit about the reaction from your colleagues as well as the larger world to your being thrust into the public eye. 
Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting because I would say, and I have heard this is typical of cancel culture when the left comes after a conservative voice, or, you know, even I consider myself, you know, very center right, um, that you will get a lot of support behind the scenes, but people have been fearful to speak up in the public square because they don't want to be canceled in return. What I have experienced is initially there was a crew of, if I had to guess, you know, I'd go off the petition that they started to get me hired. There were about 500 voices, uh, you know, really loud, angry voices who were demanding that for questioning Title IX, I be fired because questioning Title IX then makes me transphobic and unsafe. Um, as best I can tell, really, it's not been any of my former students um, who have been doing this. These are just people with an agenda. There has been at least an eight-year battle to get the LGBTQ group at Baylor University an affirmed, sanctioned campus group. And the university has declined to do that for them. And so this was fodder for their fire. And so they ran after this with full force. And they apparently, I didn't even know this, I was on their safe list. But then after I questioned Title IX, they took me off and wrote, you know, a slanderous article in their student paper, started a petition to get me fired. What ended up happening, and so I want to give, you know, kind of the, the Christian sphere of influence credit for this, a lot of Christian outlets, a lot of Christian organizations, a lot of leaders within the Christian community rose up in my defense. So some did it very publicly and some did it behind the scenes. Baylor University ended up releasing a statement that sided with at least free speech. So they did not touch this issue, which, you know, the LGBTQ issue, which is fine. That's not even really my fight. But they did at least say we are not investigating her under Title IX and she has the right to free speech. And campus is not meant to always feel safe. College will challenge you. Um, and so I think where I would love to see perhaps Baylor or even the church, Big C Church, grow a little as to say, okay, but from here, you know, let's talk about protected religious speech as well. And let's also talk about why we do these, you know, these, these Christian acts of justice in the first place, because it is being co-opted by these secular narratives that can be really harmful. Um, and I think that that's what the situation highlights. When we allow these secular narratives to tell us why we do justice and what justice looks like, it goes awry you know, particularly at a Christian university. This would be different at a state school, but at a Christian university, we have to integrate faith into these conversations or what are we doing? Well, the other thing that I have experienced is that with the LGBTQ community, it is, you know, in many ways it's global, but when they go after a conservative uh, professor, it usually isn't the people on your campus. I mean, the ones that know you, the ones that's been in your classes, it's people that have an agenda. And to the credit of Baylor, they have not recognized uh, these groups because if they were to do so, as many quote Christian schools have already done, uh, it would be going contrary to what the Bible has to say about uh, sexuality. 
Right. And, and here's what I would say, because people have asked, you know, where do you stand on this? And I would say, you know, I probably have a little bit of a different answer as an American than I do as a Christian, because we live in a pluralistic society. But I keep going back to the point that Baylor is a Christian university. This isn't a state school. And so if their civil liberties are not at jeopardy, which they are not, then I have a hard time understanding and reconciling why a Christian university would sanction them on campus because most orthodox traditional Bible-believing Christians cannot hermeneutically and theologically defend um, the narratives that they are espousing. You know, and so again, like you may find a few who are more affirming in their beliefs about LGBTQ, but the whole of, of, of you know, sort of Bible-believing Christians have a really hard time affirming that narrative because it doesn't align with scripture. Well, one of the uh, issues, I think, for Southern Baptists in particular is that you have uh, well-known spokespersons like, um, was her name Jen Hatmaker? Yeah, Jen Hatmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as now there's some ambiguity about uh, Max Locata. Yeah. Uh, where they stand on this issue. Yeah. And if you look at the Southern Baptist Convention, there are a lot of critical theories that are in the organization and they're pushing critical theory when it comes to race and when it comes to women. Uh, and I think that Baptists are sort of being turned upside down. And there are a lot of forces that are pushing people away from the gospel towards uh, you know, the secular view of quote, progressive Christianity. And so if you uh, endorse progressive Christianity, that's a totally different gospel that rejects uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would say, um, and I don't know how familiar your, your listeners are at this, but that is more liberation theology. Yes. And so again, you know, this is what I always tell my students because I would do them a disservice if I didn't bring into conversation progressive narratives, narratives because they're going to encounter them when they go You're out. Right. So what I always do is I say, let's put the gospel over this narrative and see where it aligns. Where it does not align, do not buy into these tenets from this progressive narrative whether that's critical theory, critical race theory, you know, back, you know, queer theory, all of these theories. If you can't find the gospel, then it probably does not align and we need to reject it. And so I think that that is where it's a little bit harder for people to reconcile because people have different interpretations. But, um, you know, we look at 2000 years of orthodoxy, right? Like that, I don't know, ju you know, just because 2020 tried to throw all of that out the window doesn't mean that we should too. And I think, you know, I can't speak to the Southern Baptist Coalition, but I do think one of the conversations the church should have that I think would help is to say, okay, where is the gospel sufficient? Where do we look at scripture and see that it gives us reason to do justice? So we're not going to just shirk back and say, well, we don't do justice. That's not what the church is meant to do. And at the same time, we also don't jump on the train of whatever narrative is in vogue this year. You know, we need to look at where, where's our template for historically, how have we done this? How are the Romans doing the justice? How are Christians in the Roman Empire doing justice? And we look at the ways that they intervened with infanticide, for example. Like apparently, you know, theologians and historians will say that that was a real testament to who Christians were, that they stepped up and said, we believe in the sanctity of life. So we're not going to allow infanticide. So there's history behind Christians doing justice. We don't need postmodern narratives. 
And you know, something that you're saying that you, you know, that ties into this is you look at the reaction in America to the coronavirus, that pandemic, always in the past, it was the Christians that ministered to the sick. And, you know, when there was smallpox and all of these uh, crises, we did not have the fears of the world. And so we went into those places where people had tuberculosis and uh, Christians ministered to people who were sick. But I think that there was so much fear around the coronavirus that Christians did not necessarily do what they would have done in the past. Yeah, you know, that's just an, it's an interesting point because I think 2020 is so hard to use as an example for all of, you know, what Christians have done in the face of injustice or sickness because we were all in lockdown. You know, we were told to social distance and, you know, we had a Christianity Today did an article on this. You're like, what do you do? How do you love your neighbor when your neighbor is overseas, but also your literal neighbor is struggling next door? So I think that, you know, 2020 and coronavirus, that was kind of that was an oddity. But we can look at, you know, the history of the church. And there's a reason hospitals have an effect affiliation with the church. Like, you know, there's a lot of St. Right. Joseph's and you can look at, you know, particularly here in the South, there's a lot of Baptist based hospitals because doing justice and loving on the poor and the sick and the marginalized has always been a part of our faith. Always. I would say personally that I think that the church uh, folded too easily and that it, it's been a disgrace how we have treated our elderly in nursing homes, allowing them to die alone. But that's a different story. I want to get back to you. And I want to say that I am so proud of you. And I'm pleased that we have faculty like you teaching at Christian universities. And I know that you've not written your first major book, but I think you need to write a book uh, about this biblical justice versus uh, social justice. The world needs that book. And in the time remaining, talk a little bit about your work with, so, with the um, human trafficking. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, about 10 years ago, well, you know, maybe a little bit less than that, I went on a maternity leave. I was an assistant professor at a university out in California, you know, kind of took a maternity leave, had two kids under two at the time, and ended up really lending my experience and expertise to the A21 campaign, which is uh, Christine Kane's organization for anti-human trafficking. They, at the time, were trying to align some curriculum with state standards in order to get into high school uh, classrooms. So I ended up doing that and through that learned about the atrocity of human trafficking and human trafficking, which affects an estimated 20 to 40 million people globally, just depending on how you are defining human trafficking. Um, and within the states, you know, we see that with labor trafficking, we see that with sex trafficking. With 2020, there is a 108% increase of online child exploitation, according to the National Center of Missing and Exploiting Children, Exploited Children. Um, so I think this is one of those topics. It's like, once you know, you can't unknow. And as I looked across the landscape of academia, there weren't very many professors doing this for their research, particularly within this, this field of education. So I just decided, you know, I've got all of this curriculum expertise. I have have, you know, the, the clout and the credibility, I'm going to lend my research to doing this, to advocating for anti-trafficking um, organizations and research. When I came back to Baylor University, 
I started doing research with a colleague. We went to a high school to look at, is this curriculum working? You know, can, is it verifiable? Is it, you know, robust? Is it all the things it purports to do? And we found significant gains. So that was good. I started teaching an anti-trafficking class at Baylor through their honors college, um, just raising awareness, helping to bring up the next generation uh, to do this sort of justice. And I'm always very unapologetic about saying I do this because I see the gospel in this, that this is redemption and restoration of people, image bearers of Christ. So that is sort of my heart behind doing anti-trafficking work. And you work with a particular organization. I'd like for you to give our listeners information about how they can donate also how they can reach you to offer support. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I've worked with several different organizations. There's a lot of great faith-based ones um, out there. And if your listeners want to contact me, um, you can find me either on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, I'm happy to give you a list of even more. But one in particular I'd like to highlight, because it was founded out of our church here in Waco, is unboundnow.org. So Unbound is a global anti-trafficking agency. It works with prevention. It works with um, restoration. Um, it, so so it uh, has a faith-based lens to why we would do this sort of advocacy work. Um, and so it'll work with, you know, they work with anybody, you know, whether that person's faith-based or not. They go, you know, they, they service everybody, um, but their heart behind it is very, you know, gospel, biblical justice oriented. So unboundnow.org. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Crenshaw. And we're going to be, well, I know I'm going to be following your career and we will put up a link to this organization that you associated with as well as your contact information. And I'm expecting you to do great things. And whether you are at Baylor or a different university, we need more young people like you who are willing to stand and fight. And so um, I just would encourage you uh, to know that you're doing a great work and, and that God is well pleased with your efforts. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to everyone else, uh, look at Dr. Crenshaw's example. She is a person that's out there being the people. And it's up to us, the we the people mentioned in the preamble of the Constitution, to stand up and be the people who change our nation and our world. And in this case, we're talking about our churches. We have to educate and change our churches they need to know about the secular world theories that are influencing Christians. <laughs>